Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, I am a member of the public who would love to see it. It being (laughs) incumbent uh, health secretary being called to resign as I don't Mm. think anyone has. Well, a a few people, but not the key person the Kia person even who is apparently the leader of the opposition <laughs> yeah i we we're living in such a time where i'm just going to be even more blatantly political right off the bat mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, i'm afraid uh so yeah you know just a citizen sharpening something <laughs> how are you <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm doing okay. Uh, I was very very relieved that my parents have had their first uh, dose of the vaccine yes. uh, yesterday, yes, um, which uh, was a tremendous relief because they're both working during all of this. My dad works uh, at a grocery store, so obviously he's facing members of the public every day and uh, has plenty of stories of people showing up and being really pissy about masks with him. <sighs> So obviously that's been a, a background concern for me for much of the last year. And uh, although my mum doesn't work in a job where she is like constantly having to deal with members of the public, occasionally she will. And there's always that worry that, you know, even if she wasn't that at risk of catching it, that like, you know, maybe my dad would catch it and bring it home or whatever. But so that's kind of a nice, that's, that's been a nice relief over the last couple of days of just thinking, okay, that's, one less thing uh, to worry about. Obviously, they still need to get their second dose in a month's time, but yeah. um, that that was a, a real nice bit of news uh, for me this week. So we'll go on to the news for this week, and uh, I think the first th- story we have to go to, because it, it kind of just broke in the last couple of hours, was uh, there's kind of a general revolt kind of happening against the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, the organisation behind... The Golden Globes, who, you know, have generally been held in very low esteem for a very long period of time by everyone. Um, But, you know, they host a boozy fun night out once a year. So everyone kind of pays attention to them a little bit. Uh, But there have been reports that people have been taking issue with some of the uh, basically insider trading that seems to be going on there where members of the organization of its 87 membership uh enjoy incredible perks for sitting on various committees where they get like thousands of dollars a month just for being involved in all of these different jobs and also getting to go on like ludicrously expensive junkets including going to uh paris uh in i guess 2019 it would have been where they threw out 30 members of the hollywood foreign press association to go to the set of emily in paris and then uh, a year later Funnily enough, uh, that show getting a nomination, a bunch of nominations, and and just yeah, it, 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 as I joked to you when we were kind of like discussing this before, you know, I always knew that the Golden Globes were a joke. I just didn't realize how lucrative a joke it, it actually is. Oh, very much so. And not only were those thirty HFPA members flown to France to visit the set, uh, according to Julia Turner on Twitter. They were treated by Paramount Network to a two-night stay at the five-star Peninsula Paris Hotel, where rooms currently start at about fourteen hundred US dollars a night, <laughs> mm. which is an insane amount of money. And I haven't looked into it yet, but did they actually put up thirty HFPA members in actual Paris, the capital of <laughs> France? while Emily in Paris was being filmed in Ile-de-France, which is a suburb quite a way out of Paris. I mean, priorities, I guess. It is, it is weird, because, yeah, it's lucrative. But also, like, I was shocked at... I thought that the HFPA had more members than 87. Like, mm, so the yeah. Academy has wider sort of diversity in membership. And it's just this kind of... Um, it reminds me of, like the 
time I spent watching My Super Sweet 16. You know, where it mm-hmm. feels like where <laughs> one of the kind of tropes of every episode was that there was a big giving out of invitations by mm. this brat to their party and it was just you know huge and that's kind of how it feels is well who's how how <laughs> how shallow <laughs> is their vanity and that you know is it who really pays attention to the golden globes massively i know i keep banging this drum of like it's good that they have different categories so that comedy actually gets a nom or you know musicals and it's not just the kind of worthy oscar bait but now it's just like just have a party why doesn't everyone Mm. just get goodie bags rather than a figurine to go home i don't know whether this will then mean that anything changes but it's good to have receipts to use the parlance of our times ed of being like oh no it really is that it really is that uh blatant i guess yeah, in terms of the instances of open corruption currently on display on both sides of the Atlantic, it's kind of fairly minor, but it, it does point to, yeah, just how there's kind of a a rot at the heart of a lot of the, the ways. It, I, I, I just want to say before, because I realise where this is heading, I'm not getting into it, it's about ethics and journalism or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, as dangerous as like, like in my head, I could see where the tracks are going. Like, wait, no, 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 no. Uh, but like, you know, there are a lot of instances of you know, like journalists getting to go on these kind of junkets where they get treated very nicely in ter- in exchange for kind of like positive coverage. And I think most people who write about film don't kind of engage with that sort of stuff. Or they try and remain maintain some sort of objectivity to it. But there are chances out there there are absolutely people who are go incredibly slight on everything because they want to get access or because you know they like the people and they'll give them a kind of like an easier go of it yeah. and this what is it just seems to me like the most like extreme version of that where like all the members of the hollywood foreign press association have kind of just been you know in many places places either lining their pockets through like all of these uh committees or whatever that they're on and then they get stipends for or by just being like yeah i'll go to paris and stay in like a uh hugely expensive hotel for several days and visit the set and then uh, award that show with uh nominations that it uh, probably doesn't deserve mm. um so we'll go on to the next story and it was the news this week that jesse plemons the internet's favorite boy um mm. is going to be the lead in the new martin scorsese movie uh killers of the flower moon <laughs> just had to take a second <laughs> every time i get the order of the words in that name wrong which is uh, an adaptation of the david grand book about murders of members of a native american tribe in the 1920s and like was one of the first like big cases for the nascent fbi and it's a really it's a great book i think i've recommended it on the show multiple times in the past it's just like a really wonderful uh, bit of true crime and it's a, a, a great story and uh, initially uh, it was going to star leonardo dicaprio in the lead role as one of the fbi investigators but apparently dicaprio has ceded the lead role he's going to be taking on one of the more supporting roles uh, presumably because he finds something about that more interesting and the lead therefore is going to be played by jesse plemons and that's just really that's just really cool because jesse plemons is someone whose career i've been following since he played the role of of landry in friday night lights um back in 2005 whenever that show uh started and like he's someone whose career i've just followed since then with like great interest because he's such a solid sensitive varied actor who can do like comedy really well like he's hilarious in game night um he can do drama he can do soulful he can do small roles he can do bigger roles he's just one of those those actors who has built up such a solid body of work over the last decade or so and worked with like some really great directors but never quite had that role where he kind of like breaks out to be a lead and is really exciting seeing him working with Scorsese again after they worked together on The Irishman see him being bumped up to a lead role in in a major 
hopefully major. It's it's debuting on Apple Plus, so who knows? But um, but you know, like a a major a major picture. He's our boy. What can I say? Mm. I think the first thing I saw him in that really clicked for me was as uh, PSH's son in The Master. Yes. Which was, yeah, just like, permit the pun, please, a masterstroke of casting, because not only is there Mm. such a strong resemblance, but even though there wasn't a huge amount of screen time for Jesse Plemons, you could sense how much his father had affected him and that he had Mm. this push-pull towards him and served as this lovely kind of reflection to Joaquin Phoenix. You know, it's Freddie, like, just for a flash, and it just made it so much richer. And I think... That's something that PTA really loves to do is have no small parts that doesn't mm. that doesn't exist for PTA. So to get someone like Gina McKee in, you know, by the end of Phantom Thread, you're like, oh yeah, Gina McKee was in that. Camilla um, <laughs> Rutherford. Oh my God. Um and he's just like, it's just a shame I don't get to work with everyone for the whole time. It's like just write just write them in. It's, it's your movie anyway I think Jesse Plemons is great and I loved seeing him and Kirsten Dunst who for me were the highlights of the second series of Fargo um, absolutely like far and away um, such a great dynamic and of course they are in love and have baby which is you know that's a nice story I just love love I'm so excited to see where Jesse Plemons goes and that mm. he is still he's still young but it's that really exciting point of finding someone who's been working for a long time and then gets their profile when they get these really meaty roles like olivia coleman as well Mm. obviously like well known in the uk because woman's always been working (laughs) she was in various comedy shows even before peep show for a long time and then, you know, a dog all together and Tyrannosaurus just completely changed her profile. And now, she, you know, she's obviously, she's got an Oscar. But I think it's really exciting to see people who, and using heavy uh, air quotes here, break through when they're not like 19. <laughs> mm. Like that in itself, I find refreshing because I think you just get a richer body of work. Alan Rickman, who I think would have been 75 recently the late great you know didn't start acting until he was 40 and there's just something nice about that maturity just coming through so yeah cannot wait Mm, yeah absolutely Uh, and in Scorsese adjacent news (laughs) there was um, a bit of a fuss kicked up in the week when he was uh, interviewed and he made the fairly, I would say the fairly benign comment, but um, movies should be more than content. You know, essentially saying that movies should offer something more to people than just being something that you have on, which is perfectly, I'd say, a reasonable thing and certainly in keeping with his decades of advocating for film preservation and generally, you know, his constant appearances on talk shows where he'll just start listing off like a thousand movies that you should watch. Um, You know, he's just like such a lovely man who wants everyone to watch as many movies as possible and think they should be considered as something good and vital in the world. And then people online just completely lost their shit over it. And I don't want to dwell on this sort of stuff too much, but um, the thing about that is like it kind of sent off a, cas- a cascade of bad takes <laughs> um, over the course of the week uh, where people were saying like, you know, one, they just said like, you know, he only makes gangster movies, which is like, yeah, he made like four. <laughs> like if, you, if you're going on like... The age of innocence, of... people. The age of innocence. <laughs> like, you know, he had a, he's, he's had a very, very career. Like if you want to say he made a bunch of crime movies, sure. But like, you know, Taxi Driver is not a mob movie. Um Gangs of New York, there's no, yeah, anyway. Hugo! Um, <laughs> Hugo, Silence, that famous mob movie, Silence. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who's a bigger mob than the church? That's the, <laughs> God, that's the is the, God is the ultimate mafioso slash boss. <laughs> oh, it's just heresy coming from all angles, isn't it, Ed? I mean, yeah, yeah it, just, it just goes to show, like, the staggering capacity for bad faith that people mm, have yeah. and i don't know i'm i'm really sort of uh, lukewarm on the idea of like having 
a free market of opinions because Marty is uh, he's a sweet kind of uh, sweet older dad now and you know I still think his uh, his daughter is it Marina his youngest um, I'm not sure isn't it Catherine Katharina no? oh yeah maybe but Scorsese Jr. in her infinite <laughs> wisdom wrapped up the old man's Christmas presents in MCU wrapping paper, which I think is such a staggering prank slash own. <laughs> I have, again, in the pants of our times, no choice but to stand. Lee. Francesca. Francesca. Scorsese is his youngest. Francesca. Franny. And yeah, that's a great, that's a great joke. It's that so good. Very, very funny. It's so good. And like, and, and that's the kind of that's the only response that i think is correct in this instance which is good-natured joshing like Mm -hmm. and i think scorsese has a point like because i think there's this drive to amalgamate everything into a screen which Mm. there's definitely a lot of advantages to but there is a lot being lost and you're so right in terms of he just wants people to be able to see as many films as possible like he does. And the fact that he has um, been a champion of film archives around the world, including uh, right here in Scotland, the National Library of Scotland's um, Scottish Screen Archive, is, you know, he, he's sent personal messages and support. And, and that's incredible to have a name like that backing up. And it's like, nothing committed to film is too provincial like this is important to preserve how we lived because there's something about watching footage that just you realize everyone was in motion at one time it's distinctly different to a photograph and I always get really moved when I see footage of like people having snowball fights in the 1890s (laughs) you know Mm. it's stuff like that we're like oh my god we are this humans are the same we change our clothes and we like to think that we're we've progressed <laughs> but mm. we are essentially we see white cold stuff and we throw it at each other um and that's what i love scorsese for and yeah i will keep banging uh, the age of innocence drum that i have beside me at all times because i need to have it on me at all times and that's the thing i i wouldn't say that scorsese is a monotonous filmmaker at all he's just really well known for a certain type of film because he really Mm. struck out with that and for people to reduce him to that is understandable but not fair particularly if you're claiming to be oh you know i'm coming out after scorsese because i know film better and i think you know the word content is sort of implicitly derogative um, and I think maybe it's a case of like phrasing could have been a bit better and it, but again, maybe it was, and it's just this kind of snappy sound bite clickbait kind of thing. But I think, I think he's right. Like, you know, because it's not to say that there's anything wrong with Marvel in and of itself or content as a concept, but it's the ubiquity and the monopoly. Like how much does Disney own again? <laughs> Mm. <laughs> that that I'm definitely on board with Marty. Mm. Uh, last thing on this before we get into the main topic, it, it the 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 really nice thing that kind of came out of all of this was that uh, Edgar Wright shared a transcript of a voice memo that Scorsese sent him, where like he had he had written Scorsese a letter uh, thanking him for the list of movies that he had come up with at some point, saying like oh movies that everyone should see, mm. which Edgar Wright wrote. Uh, watched all of during lockdown you know when he was watching tons of movies and so he wrote him a letter and then at the end of it he just basically says out of interest i just wondered what your if you were to come up with a list of your favorite british films what would they be and uh so he sent it off and then he got a voice memo from scorsese which was clearly from the way it was written was him like walking around his house or whatever just kind of like trying coming up with stuff and listing off all these things and uh, it was just really really sweet this list of him just kind of like throwing out all of these different movies and and yeah like it's it he is such the ultimate for me example of what a cinephile should be mm. like 
someone who really is just kind of like so in love with the medium and will just constantly be throwing out saying oh this is something you should see like this is something that you know i feel like is really good and people should see and who like puts in the effort to try and make that possible like the opposite of a gatekeeper Mm. you know he's not someone who's like you have to watch this selection of films everything else is terrible he's actually saying no there is so much more out there to discover don't limit yourself yeah he's the guy who uh hoists you over the wall (laughs) so we'll go on to the main topic for this week and it is six feet under the hbo show created by alan ball which debuted in 2001 which if my math is correct was 20 years ago (laughs) um it actually debuted in june but we're going to talk about it now because um it came up in conversation thought, oh we 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 shouldn't wait we should talk about 16 under now because i know it's a show that uh, you and i both love and it was very kind of like uh, formative for us you know in our kind of like getting into television as a prestigious and important medium so we thought we'd, put, we'd talk about it now why wait for people who aren't familiar six feet under is a show set at the fisher and sons funeral home in los angeles uh run for most of the series by nate fisher played by peter krauser and his brother david played by michael c hall uh in the first episode of the show their father nate senior is killed in a bus accident and then reappears as a ghost or a a figment of their imagination talking to them played brilliantly throughout the series by richard jenkins uh also stars uh, francis conroy as their mother ruth and their sister uh claire fisher played by lauren ambrose and it's kind of about their emotional journey as people who start the show in a place of terrible grief obviously because their father has died in a kind of like a horrifying fashion but who are surrounded by grief because obviously their business is death you know they are people who see people at their most kind of like painful moments in their lives and have to try and help them deal with the pain of saying goodbye to a loved one or someone they have more complicated relationship with uh every show started with a death and that death then kind of you know the the arrangements of funeral would provide the structure for that episode and the show sort of ran for five seasons had probably certainly in contention for one of the best series finales of all time and it was just a absolutely uh fantastic show uh emily uh we'll start, start with you when did you first watch um six feet under kudos on that introduction ed I was just thinking, I first saw Six Feet Under, it must have been about 2003, I think, Mm -hmm. because it was broadcast on Channel 4 quite late at night, and I think I stumbled upon it, and then really got into it. So I think I must have seen somewhere around Series 3, I must have dropped in. And then Mm. kind of went back to the start because DVD box sets were the way that you caught up with American shows back in the early to mid noughties. And I really liked your introduction there because I think what really struck me about it is that even though plenty happens episode to episode, it's a bit more like a soap in that, Really, it's about interpersonal relationships with a dash of like events, but they're all quite, you know, minutiae and observed. And yet there is this high production value, magic realism running through it, like dreams and kind of fantasies are weaved into actual experience and are just as vivid for us and for the characters experiencing them as their day-to-day lives and I think it was the first time I really saw that in tv like represented Mm. so well I also um in terms of every episode opening with a death it's kind of annoying that it did actually happen after the credits because (laughs) it's not technically a cold open and yet it is (laughs) Mm. and yeah that was that was weird and because i rewatched the first two episodes last night in preparation for this and like for some reason in my mind they were always cold opens that it would you would have the death and then you would have the the opening theme which structurally would seem to make more sense but yeah like but that that opening those opening credits are great they're like a real kind of like 
great showcase of the form for setting the overall tone where you have this music that's kind of playful but also kind of like mournful and maybe slightly menacing particularly towards the end as it fades out mm. like uh, but overall these like really clinical images of you know a body being kind of like worked on you know like it really does so much to kind of establish the, the, the tone of the show in much the same way as like you know the curb theme does mm. or you know it's keeping it in hbo or like the sopranos opening like it, it it's it's up there with those shows in just such good table setting absolutely like i hadn't ever heard a theme tune that had such a dark sense of humor before because it, mm. it is quite wry <laughs> like it's not fully sinister but you can't help but feel that something's a bit twisted and i think the power in that opening sequence is that it does not change from the pilot throughout the mm. whole thing because it's essentially stock footage you don't yeah. see any of the characters. It doesn't even look like LA. It's just kind of a really strong, almost sizzle reel style tone. And the emphasis on the universality of death and yet the, sh the, and yet the subjectivity of every single person dying in different ways, you know, there's not, you know, no death happens twice. <laughs> there's, it's yeah. always, and um, obviously we can come to sort of favourite deaths, but Something that I wanted to start with is just how the pilot and the first series is so different from, you know, other than the theme sequence, really different from how it evolves. And for me, Six Feet Under is a bit like the Beatles and that you're like, oh my God, wait, it was only how many years? Because it's five seasons. And the first series is very much a kind of standoff between you know, mom and pop or pop and son shop and the threat of a takeover. And mm. the pilot episode is a bit more like leaning towards American beauty because there are these almost intertitles of, or, and maybe watching it on TV, you would have been led to think it's an actual ad or infomercial for mm. products, for funerals um, and for preparing um, bodies to lie in state. And, you know, this beautiful makeup is actually on a dead person. And again, it's that very kind of what lies beneath <laughs> that Alan Ball was kind of drumming for the suburbs for American Beauty. And I'm really glad they dropped that because I think the least interesting bit of commentary in the first series of Six Feet Under is this quite on the surface anti-commercial takeover corporate stuff. And I think they managed to kind of trickle it in in a much more interesting way throughout the other few series because again this is a this is a show about people who work like mm. it, and it's quite rare to see people whose work is number one you know that emotional so you actually have so many opportunities for um for storylines but two um to actually just see some of the processes that happen and you know, Peter Krauser as Nate and Michael C. Hall as David could have full scenes and you realise there's been a dead body between them the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And I really love the pilot episode, though, because I think it manages to set up this really strong dynamic between Nate and David in particular, because Nate is this kind of classic tearaway oldest son who kind of needs to rebel. And David is kind of the uh, the good loyal son who takes up the mantle of the business and their approaches in the first episode is Nate wants everyone to kind of let their emotions fly and then David is like do you understand why we actually have to be reserved because I had to do this very intimate procedure on our father's body and Nate just gets it in that moment and decides to kind of assume the position of his father somewhat and, and help his brother and help the family and stay and then there's this kind of echo with Claire, the youngest, the uh, the surprise baby, shall we say, mm -hmm. who is much younger and an artist and is kind of simultaneously attracted to and repulsed by the um, arrival home of her brother because they understand each other the most and yet they kind of threaten each other with the position for the rebel of the family. 
it's such an incredible family dynamic. And mm. you have Nathaniel Jenkins, who you think, oh, we're not going to see him again after he's been hit by the bus. No, no, no. <laughs> Quite the opposite. But yeah, I think it's just amazing how it shifts gear from the first series. And I think really in the third series, it really hits its stride in being about, you know, really well-crafted dialogue, internal dynamics, interpersonal relationships, rather than massive plot points. Mm. Yeah, because I think the the thing that really impressed me about the pilot, and I think it, it kind of points to a different era of television in a lot of ways, is how well it sets everyone up yeah. in terms of the dynamics, in terms of the relationships to each other, like right away, like Nate meets uh, uh, Brenda, played by Rachel Griffiths, who becomes his on again, off again kind of like relationship for much of the series. But, you know, they just beat each other in the, the airport and then they have sex in the cupboard. And then they kind of like find it themselves kind of like drawn into each other's lives. You ha- also have uh, the relationship between David and uh, Keith, played by uh, Matthew St. Patrick, who is his boyfriend. But at the start of the series, no one knows that he's gay. So, you know, he shows up at the funeral and, you know, as a, dressed in, as a cop and he's like, you know, can't really explain entirely why he's there he just has to say that he's like david's racquetball partner or whatever and you know it does a really good job of just setting up how everyone relates to each other and it does it in you know an hour you know the episode's slightly longer because of all those commercials that you that you mentioned um and you know that's just kind of what television had to be back then before you had the streaming revolution where most shows you know you get a season to kind of figure out what you're doing like i think the assumption back then even on hbo which you know was generally kind of more willing to take risks on things there was always that sense of like yeah the first episode kind of needs to set everything up and let people know more or less what they're in for and the pilot you know it's it's a bit broad in that respect you know i think it's very on the nose in some in some ways but it 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 absolutely gets that and you do get a sense of who all these characters are and how they relate to each other in a way that's really really effective even if you know claire smoking crack and that oh or is it speed uh, meth, it's, meth it's meth yeah crystal yeah. <laughs> yeah as evidenced by the fact that uh eric balfour's credit in the episode is uh claire's meth date <laughs> before <laughs> and then they gave him a name in the second episode because <laughs> they liked him so much what um, a promotion <laughs> but yeah like her smoking meth and then going to then learning that her father has died and then having to drive her mother to the hospital and all this sort of stuff like yes if you wanted to say this person's life maybe isn't entirely together <laughs> like that's maybe a little bit of an extreme one but i think bald does a, like a really really good job of kind of like holding all that stuff in check and like you said the 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 small doses of surrealism i think are really interesting um the one I'd completely forgotten about in but rewatching the pilot really made me laugh is there's a sequence where David is talking to people at mourners at a different funeral and he's like holding it together and then suddenly he just screams and then suddenly the camera pulls back and moves in again you realize oh that's just him like what he wants to do in his head yeah and it's just this really it's just this really sudden uh disorientating moment that's really really effective and there's a there's a great bit towards the end where Nate imagines himself like standing in front of one of the city buses uh, and getting run over and then he imagines himself dying and then he's in the morgue and then his father's there sitting naked with a bunch of other men playing cards and uh, Nate's uh, senior system well I will deal you in next time and then he kind of like returns to the real world and like those kind of like little playful flashes are really kind of effective at telling you giving you a sense of like the magical realist elements of the show because obviously you know those people those those dead figures aren't really there but the conversations that the characters have with them and the effects they have on their lives are like very important going forward and that i think like like you say the show kind of became i think better at teasing out the nuances of those ideas whereas like in the first going maybe because like ball was coming from having won an oscar for writing a movie that was 
I would say fairly obvious in what it was trying to do. <laughs> like maybe it took a few seasons for him to kind of realize that you didn't necessarily have to have everyone state exactly what they were thinking. Completely. And I wonder if there is that sort of, you know, American beauty, I think struck a chord with so many people because it felt like the first time they'd seen the great American novel, or at least it was the great American novel film of the nineties. And mm. HBO's whole idea, of course, was its home box office, its cinematic quality uh, television, um, mm. and to try and elevate television as a medium. But to me, like Six Feet Under reads like a, a Booker Prize winner, you know, in, yeah. in the kind of the time span it manages to cover. And I think because magical realism to me is such a literary technique that it's rendered so perfectly through television in a way that I think may feel a, would have felt a bit gimmicky in film possibly I think just because they're quite bold with it and I always love that mm. like as you were describing it you know that kind of realization of like oh wait no this is a fantasy or oh this is a dream and that they would lead you into sort of how how real that felt for a character how potent that desire can be and then it doesn't happen and you kind of get that like jolt of like, oh, you didn't do it. Oh, <laughs> kind of always feeling disappointed yeah. or relieved, you know, depending on some things that happen. And mentioning Brenda and Rachel Griffiths there, I think what Six Feet Under also managed to do was have, again, no small parts. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that yeah. sort of the PTA, but everyone is a fully, like a fully fleshed out, <laughs> even the people who are no longer alive. Uh, character and there is this almost like lyrical way of being able to capture someone even in just the snatches we see of their last moments um, mm -hmm. and some of the deaths range from you know violent unexpected and tragic to strangely life-affirming like the one that really one of the ones that really sticks with me is um because oh, I know I know the whole podcast could just be kind of your top five um, six feet under deaths, but I just want to mention this one now, where um, there's this really big, loud family, and they're eating dinner, and it comes to dessert, and this little boy asks his grandma, like, why doesn't granddad or you know uncle have any uh, cling peaches? And he's like, oh, he loves cling peaches, but he's got the diabetes, so he can't have any. And he sits there and he has his cup of tea, and and you realize like and this loud family is still kind of, he's completely silent. This loud family is just kind of clearing away the plates and all this and kind of under absolute secrecy, not seen at all. He goes and gets a can of cling peaches and he eats it and his face of just like absolute joy, like bliss as he's biting into these peaches and you know, that's it. And then fades out and we have his name and uh, his birth year and his death year. And there's something again, like I say, strangely life affirming about that. But not just, um, you know, each of these, because they are characters, even though you see them like and, and sort of they're mentioned and you find out they're sort of family and friends throughout the episode. But the wider universe of the direct sort of friends, family, lovers, acquaintances of the Fishers. So and, and how through Brenda, we get to know her family, the Chenoweths. Her parents are both um psychologists and therapists um so really crazy family her brother billy who struggles with bipolar played by jeremy sisto who is just absolutely mm. incredible in this um it was also i think pretty much the first show i saw that had a latinx couple and family in kind of leading roles with federico and vanessa diaz played by freddie rodriguez and justina machado mm. um and also like keith played by Matthew St. Patrick, David's um, on top of front, Lily Taylor, <laughs> who plays uh, Nate's wife, James Cromwell, mm -hmm. like an incredible cast, Ben Foster, Kathy Bates, like... Yeah, Rain Wilson oh, for a little bit. Yeah. Pre-fame Rain Wilson. <laughs> like, every and everyone is, is valid. Even Arthur, Rain Wilson's character, who arguably could be seen as, in some lights, a bit of a cartoonish creep, is still a real person. Like, every... I haven't seen a show really since, apart from maybe I may destroy you, which holds everyone's perspective as um, as uh, real 
and yet kind of keeps the conflict plausible. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. not like anyone ever takes sides. Like it's just like we are seeing it from this protagonist's point of view. And of course it, it all it all switches. And again, I just think, oh God, sorry, you know I love this show so much and I'm so excited to talk about this because it's like oh, 20 years, any excuse. But oh my God, the women in this show, like thinking of Kathy Bates and, and Bettina and Ruth and how their friendship is so unexpected and yet completely makes sense all at once and that they are kind of chalk and cheese and they learn so much from each other. Patricia Clarkson as mm. uh, as Ruth's sister, Sarah. Tina what Holmes. A, what a great... Uh, the casting in this show in general is just oh. so good. Like everyone's so perfect, but there is such a great bit of... Uh uh of sisterly casting in that that choice like oh. they're such good choices and lauren ambrose as well like i think just the kind of familial resemblance mm. is really plausible and yet yeah, believable you're like oh yeah these people are related to each other but in terms of just the women in this show the range of them and the depth and i know i keep coming back to real magic realism and, and real but it but it is the, these they feel like actual people and i still think it has the best representation of a sex worker i've ever seen and this was back in 2002 i think it's the second series where brenda is friends with a sex worker who is like mm. oh you're clearly you, you are literally just using me for your you're projecting so much onto me and using me for your own kind of cd purposes and this is grim so i'm out yeah oh i love it so much ed sorry you talk now please <laughs> Uh, well, I was just thinking in, in terms of like some of the the broader galaxy of characters. Mm. I was I was thinking watching last night about the relationship between David and Keith, and thinking like like uh, you, it kind of felt very groundbreaking for the time in terms of a depiction of a fairly loving but very complicated yeah. uh, gay relationship. I, I was just kind of like trying to think about how I feel about it now because I I kind of feel like. It's one of those things where you watch something and it feels very transgressive at the time, and then afterwards it kind of feels a little tame mm. in comparison. Like, and that's kind of like the question that I kind of have in that. Like, it 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 still feels very real and very intimate, and it kind of makes sense. And, and as the show went along, their relationship became more tense. I think, obviously, uh, the the events of that's my dog. Um, oh God! One of the one of the great episodes of television that I. Struggle to ever feel like I would ever want to rewatch because mm. um, it's just uh, I just remember watching that on TV for the first time when it aired and just being like oh my god this is just like one of the most intense things I've ever seen that like really complicates their relationship and they kind of like break up and get back together and it, it kind of goes back and forth a little bit between them but like it, it does kind of get to that thing where you wonder you know could they have pushed it further in terms of just allowing them to be intimate with each other or, you know, in maybe making Keith less of a saint than he is? Because I do feel as if, like, sometimes you watch it and think Keith is, like, almost too good to be in this show. Like, he's too... They make him, like, too good of a person for, like, everyone else on the show to be around. That That maybe there was a certain sense that they were trying to push it as far as they they could for the time and then maybe that ends up leaving it looking a little tamer in retrospect i don't know i think because keith still has such a an anger problem that's you know, true he's yeah. he i think keith really develops because at the beginning mm. he is kind of david's gorgeous secret because he hasn't yeah. come out to his family and i think at that point the complexity of what their relationship is, which is essentially a long-term relationship where you're both trying to deal with your own shit together mm -hmm. and still come out of it loving each other. At that point, I think he kind of has to be... And I think there's the idea that they haven't really been seeing each other for very long, but they're starting to get serious. And mm -hmm. Keith is like, you need to come out. So I think at the beginning, Keith was very much like, oh my God, like, of course, David has this beautiful black boyfriend. And he is the epitome of everything that maybe that would ruffle Ruth's feathers. Because even though I don't think Ruth is bigoted, she's still just like incredibly sheltered and has lived mm -hmm. her life. She went from being somebody's daughter to being somebody's mother in a, in a flash. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So I think it's that idea of kind of wanting David to really, you know, because David is wrestling between being 
a good child and actually being able to be his own adult self. And Keith has that as well in terms of his father and the abuse and the anger that he's inherited, mm-hmm. which I think develops over the series because, and I think it's so wonderful because it manages to be so much more complex and I'm going to say it again, Ed, real than the majority mm-hmm. of representation of any relationship that isn't heteronormative because it's not about their sexuality. It stops being about their sexuality in about season two. And it's about, mm. well, we still have this relationship and we're still real people. <laughs> we have to, we've got a lot to get through. And there are points where you as a viewer, as much as you might be rooting for them, there are times where I was like, I don't think they should be together. And it mm. and, and in terms of a will they won't though, it's the most kind of like genuine question. Of you know because it's not like oh they have chemistry and then stuff happens and it kind of gets in the way it's like no this is this is the real uh, ordeal of being known for the reward of true love <laughs> going on here this is the crux yeah. of the human condition and I think the thing is six feet under managed to do that and and be about the human condition and our frailties and our desires and trying to be the better angels of our nature without being really pretentious <laughs> mm, which yeah. is quite a feat yeah i think it it really benefited from being so grounded in the like you, you said earlier in like the minutiae of the funeral home a lot of the time mm. and like that was something that i found really funny in rewatching the second episode like the second episode of the show like if you were to try and boil down like what the main thrust of the plot of it is it's nate tries to reuse a coffin <laughs> like yeah. that's got like the main thing of it is like he sells a coffin to uh, a woman whose husband has died and the husband was like the head of a pyramid scheme and they actually don't have the money they can't afford the coffin anymore and then he's like okay well we'll just you you can have the cheaper coffin that's fine not realizing that it's actually illegal for them to reuse a coffin that you have to use the, the once a coffin's had a body in you have to use it and like there's something about i think that grounding is really important because you know the funeral industry is not something that a lot of people have a lot of experience of like you know your experience of it is usually not very positive it's usually like a couple of times in your life and you're never particularly like you're you're never usually in a mental state to kind of sit there and ask a bunch of questions so like it's that grounding in like just like the conversations that people have whilst they're working on bodies or in dealing with the 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 mourners and and the family members and learning about their dynamics it's like such a good episodic structure for a tv show like there's always that thing there's always the inciting incident that is going to stir something up and sometimes you know it's more serious like at the end of the first season there's a an episode they start with a gay couple being attacked and one of the couple dies and then obviously that stirs up a lot of feelings in the family for obvious reasons but sometimes it's just you know someone has a bad fall and then you know people have to kind of like deal with that and then in the the discussion that then kind of churns up a lot of other stuff and i think that's one of the reasons why it managed to remain so fresh for so long because even though a lot of the discussions that maybe had all the, the dynamics that were playing out didn't change hugely from episode to episode like um the deaths themselves are always so interesting and like the 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 different characters that came in their problems are always so interesting that you could kind of spin it like they could have spanned that show out for as long as they wanted i guess really like it it, it, there's nothing that says other than you know they kill off the main character (laughs) like fair uh which itself was kind of a fairly bold thing to do three episodes before the very end as well like that's a lot to process but it kind of makes sense in terms of the mirror um, and I don't know, Ed, I'm still holding out for um, David and Keith's boys to take up the mantle. I would watch <laughs> the shit out of that because, of course, I would. But then I'm also the person being like, I want to see a Mad Men reboot, but it's Sally Draper and it's the 80s and she's got big shoulder pads and is doing lots of coke. So, you know, <laughs> I have specific requests. I know everyone's like, have we got too many reboots? And I'm like, not enough until the ones I want. But you're right, like, it's such a rich ensemble 
and that everyone kind of gets a turn mm, but yeah. nothing outstays its welcome like yeah that that Nate like that we think he's out of the woods at the beginning of season three and it's like oh that thing he, he's a person that doesn't that's not a plot device <laughs> and yet it sort of is um we were just using that at the right time and how kind of grim and murky and a lot of I think it's also just immensely quotable and I'm really sad that there's not more gifts. <laughs> so mm. if anyone wants to do me a solid and create more gifts of six feet under, I I am eternally indebted to you. Um because the ones I can find are still great and a lot of them are you know, a lot of the the, the women's characters, like Brenda saying, I'm just so sick of being conscious all the time. <laughs> um and 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 genuinely, I know I've said this before, but I do turn to Six Feet Under like the Bible in that if I'm in a particular predicament, I know that there's a certain episode that I can go back and watch that kind of will kind of reflect what I need at that given time. And it's always a bit different. And mm. coming back to it as I go through my life, and there were certain points in my early 20s where I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm Claire right now. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm like, maybe I'm a bit more Brenda than I'd like to admit, but it, it it's cool. But there's a quote from Maggie, which is genuinely like, I, I whip out like some people do um, quotes from the Bible. And uh, Maggie says, if you, if you treat life like a vending machine where you put in virtue and get out happiness, you will be sorely disappointed. Because there's just so much wisdom in that show. And when I mm. was in America for... Christmas holiday that my mum took me to New York and we were in I think it would have been Borders because of course you have to go to Borders um and there was a book called Better Living Through Death and it was like a six feet under tie-in I still have it ah. and it's one of my favorite things that exists because what this is is not dissimilar to Twin Peaks in the style of tie-in where it is a I think it was made in between season three and season four because it's got mm. this series uh season three publicity shot um as a front cover and it's a collection of letters photos diary entries all these little kind of like the the kind of personal effects of these people including things like a letter that one of nate's ex-girlfriends back in seattle angrily writes him after she has an abortion and eats starts eating meat again and it's this like angry tirade at him. And it's, that's how deep the writers know this world and these characters. That's how rich it is. And I think that's why it manages to somehow stop being pretentious <laughs> mm. because everyone is a real character. They're not a cipher for something. You know, some of them have certain themes or archetypes thrown about. Nate believes a dog is talking to him at one point and, and, and goes to see a psychic. But that is testament to how on the brink Nate is at that point and how certain he is that something is undone in terms of Lisa, his wife. Um, so, yeah. Oh, Ed. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Oh. So uh, we've mentioned a few times, like the notion of like favorite deaths in the show because they are, you know, they're the inciting incident. Every episode S starts with a death of some. For what were some of the ones? What's what were some of your favorite deaths? Yeah. What ones were were particularly impactful for you? I think is probably the best way. Is probably a nicer <laughs> way of phrasing it. Yeah. Um. I think it's something that goes around Twitter every so often, and I always enjoy who responds when it comes mm. up. And I think impactful is exactly the right word, Ed, because there are some which are sort of darkly funny there are some which give way to unexpected depth and there are ones that really get under people's skin and mm. I think those are the ones that impact me because I think genuinely if you ask people what is the six feet under death that you remember or first comes to mind I think most people will either say the lady who died choking by herself. Yeah. Or the elevator. Mm, yeah. And I think... They're good ones. They're amazing, aren't they? And I think because they show two very specific 
kind of horrors. Mm-hmm. You know, there is the ultimate fear of that kind of avoidable death, and it's just because she's alone. Mm-hmm. Her name is also Emily, so that really struck me <laughs> at a formative time in my life. Um, and then the absolute horror of the panic, and even with people around you, maybe people could be the you know people could save you or not. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think yeah. that's the the parallel between those two and why they they stick with me so much. I think there's the the porn star who dies because her cat accidentally pushes her radio into the bath and mm-hmm. electrocutes her. Yeah, um McClung Peaches man, the uh personal assistant who is roller skating walking dogs and she says she feels so alive and so free rolling down this hill saying that she shouldn't really and then gets into a road collision and dies. Oh god. What else? The SIDS, I think the sudden infant death syndrome mm-hmm. was really beautifully done and very poignant. Oh god, the girl who's doing the prank call with her friends and then slips off the bed and breaks her neck. Mm-hmm. That's really You know, Six Feet Under takes no prisoners. Yeah. And I wonder what the process of coming up with those deaths was like because I mean it's not like completely random and what is so beautifully done is how that thread and whatever the death that is brought in kind of makes everyone think about themselves and reevaluate their lives you know and particularly that Sid's episode with um, Federico oh my god uh, just as his baby is born you know it's oh. and I think it shows how we are all connected as human beings you know like mm. And to have a job like that, to be, just to to hold that space for people, that reverence. Oh, the um, man who dies at home, surrounded by his friends and his partner, and then they create recreate Turindo for him, in the in the funeral home. That's beautiful. Mm. I think it's funny because I watched Six Feet Under before I had immediate experience of death and organizing a funeral and then after my mum died I understood on a much obviously a much more personal level the importance of a funeral and the rite of passage mm. and just the staggering work that those people do because I think a lot of people and I agree I'm one of these people we talk a lot about as we should and we don't talk enough about <laughs> nurses and teachers but also funeral directors and celebrants and um, undertakers because they do such an important, delicate job. And, for, and yeah, for death to be your every day, I mean. So there's that. Sorry, Ed, what are your most impactful deaths? Uh, some of those ones you mentioned definitely kind of figure up there. Um, I think one of the ones that immediately comes to mind uh, is uh, Gabe's younger brother accidentally shooting himself was one of those ones I remember watching it. Also because I'm not sure entirely if I have the chronology of this right, but I feel like that's one of the first times there's a death that directly impacts someone who knows the family. Because it's fairly early on in the run of the show. And so that obviously brings like a different dynamic to it as opposed to, you know, a a complete stranger they have to work on the one with uh, a guy who gets killed by a bit of ice that falls off of a plane. Oh, it's a woman. Um, it's a woman. Oh, a woman, fact. sorry. Because it's that really... Sorry, sorry, Ed, this just goes to show how yeah. many times I've seen Six Feet Under. Because it's that big... It's where they're really playing with you. Because it's that open... Mm-hmm. It's that opener where it's almost like death gets thrown around. Mm-hmm. Like you're kind of teased in this montage of like, oh, is this person going to die? Is this person going to die? And then you're like oh, it's this woman who's hit by blue ice in her back right, garden. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, you know, because you're, you're kind of, and that's such a, a masterpiece of how tension is built and relieved across that whole yes. sequence. Yeah. So that one, because of the editing, like you say, like of all of the kind of like head fakes that they throw at you, but also just the, the nature of the death, like watching that as like, I don't know, like 15, 16, however old I would have been when that episode aired just being like oh i have to worry about that now <laughs> cool <laughs> just just shit falls off of planes cool drop that um, one down 
the guy, the one uh, guy who dies of autoerotic asphyxiation. Oh yeah. Um, that was one of those because I think that may have been the first time I'd ever encountered the concept, and so like that one also kind of like sticks in your mind. Kind of like, oh well, okay, <laughs> that's that's got to be one of the worst ways to go. Not in the moment, just in the being found. Like, yeah. I think Michael Hutchins might have died by that point, but like, I yeah. don't think I, I don't think I had like looked into the details of of how he died, so it wasn't something that I kind of like knew about. Yeah, I, I think there's one where a woman falls over and she like impales her face on like a fire poker. Yes. Um, that one has always like struck me as just like like anything where it's like someone has a bad fall essentially yeah. <laughs> or like we're really the ones that like because there's so much there about just like the frailty of the human body and just like the complete randomness of it for a lot of people like literally like you say that the girl falling off the bed and breaking her neck it's just like that's just such a total freak thing but certainly a thing that could easily happen to just about anyone yeah that poker one in particular is so brutal because we see this woman actually making peace with members of her family and bringing up from therapy how she's feeling and she kind of mm. makes this breakthrough with I think it's her sister and then her father but then her husband does not take to it at all and it is a horrible freak accident but yeah. it's still you're so right it just hits there and I think um what you were saying about Gabe's younger brother and the gun is how I think what Six Feet Under did so well is that it manages to come from the immediate individual human story of greater social effects. And it mm. doesn't kind of feel like we're doing a social issue thing because how Six Feet Under actually put Iraq into its storylines and um, with vet a veteran, a sister helping her brother, um, well, euthanize. Um, himself and Claire kind of being you know struggling and um, ranting about George Bush and then you know but this woman still lost her brother and it's just incredibly painful and it managed to yeah just be on this incredibly human person to person level without being incredibly bleak how how, mm. how did they do it hmm <laughs> Uh, before we finish, I think we should probably talk about the finale of the show, which I think is, like I said at the beginning, like is it's got to be a contender for me for one of the best series finales of all time in terms of, you know, how well it resolves the kind of like current ongoing plots that it had going and, you know, like sends Claire out into the unknown, essentially, you know, to kind of go and live her own life. Uh, and all, all of that but also you know like when people talk about the finale of six feet under like really what they're talking about is the last five minutes or so when you have this incredible montage set to uh sire's uh breathe me where you see what happened to everyone every character you see how every character in the show will eventually die they all get their gravestone their marker telling you what year they die and it's just such an overwhelming experience, you know, if you've watched the entire show, you've watched it for all these years and you've kind of lived and cried with these characters and you've kind of seen what they've gone through, to suddenly be reminded, oh, yes, it all ends the same. <laughs> like every one of these people who you followed for five minutes ends up as a name on a white screen. Mm -hmm. um, and even though the deaths are different and some of them are like, you know kind of deeply sad like keith's death you know he's killed in a bot in a robbery um is the one that i always think of as being like just particularly horrible yeah. um like that you know there there is a such a commonality and it's one of those things where you think i remember when the the finale aired i was thinking you know, how how do they end this and then afterwards thinking of course that was the only way they could have ended this. <laughs> that was the only way the show could have could have resolved itself absolutely and i mean back when uh <sighs> Back when Sia was <laughs> before before she became as problematic as she uh mm. oh god, what a simpler time. Yeah, and I think what's particularly beautiful is that we have not only being able to bear witness to these characters in their ends, but also kind of how they all 
make it out okay. <laughs> like, mm. Claire gets married. Brenda has, you know, she and Brenda have a friendship throughout their entire lives. Um, yeah. Ruth and Bettina uh, live together in their kind of commune. It's, it's really, I mean, if you ever need a good cry, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely the one. Because, I mean, that is pretty much the paradigm of catharsis for me on how you how you really go out with a bang and again it just again feels really life affirming who knew all that death makes you come out and go yeah okay i'm ready to human again <laughs> so we'll end this episode we end all our episodes of shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well i'm gonna be a dweeb and just Please watch Six Feet Under. (laughs) If you haven't, I really can't recommend it enough. I think now is a particularly interesting time to be alive. And if you haven't seen it, it's time to watch it. There's also, I think, a lot of the kind of accompanying HBO material floating about on YouTube now. Kind of Mm. how they made it. Like a lot of the DVD extras, I think, have been uploaded now. And they're just great. And you can show, you you can see how much was put into the show a lot of writers and directors who were probably making stuff that you're interested in now would have passed through it at some point. Yeah, just uh, six feet under. You can't go wrong. How about you, Ed? I will recommend uh, a YouTube video from uh, Patrick Willems, a favourite of this show, who just recently did a video about needle drops in movies, um, which is basically talking about the use of pre-existing songs in movies, either diegetically or non-diegetically. He kind of talks through examples and tries to articulate why, for example, uh, Stuck in the Middle with You works really well in Reservoir Dogs or why um, Don't Stop Me Now in... Shaun of the Dead are really, really effective versus the use of uh, Rock and Roll Part 2 in Joker is is less effective. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think it's very it's a very fun video. It's just, it's, on one level, it's just an excuse to watch a bunch of great scenes of music and uh, and have someone yeah, and get to kind of see, you know, the ending of Beau Travai again, which uh, is an opportunity I'll always take. Mm-hmm. Um but also, you know, it's very interesting him talking about, you know, just kind of like going through the history of the needle drop and and partic- why particular directors are so effective at using it. And and it's just a it's a fun, good time. And uh, people can skip the first four minutes because it's a bunch of plot stuff about the ongoing storyline <laughs> of his channel, which if you're invested in, great. But if you're not, skip to the four minute mark and... <laughs> and, and you get to, you know, hear a bunch of great music played and, and, and have hear someone kind of talk very articulately about it and it's a lot of fun so that's uh needle drops i I think it's just called needle drops by patrick h willems if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fans spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we're back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me I love six feet under.